Everybody feel good? Why does it feel so nervous all of a sudden? This is like a lot of, it's a lot of tension. And it doesn't feel like it should feel like that, but I feel all tense, and let's be cool, all right? All right. Uh, we're recording whenever you guys are ready. Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today. Our show this week is very special for a number of reasons. First, our guest is my friend, Seth Wispoy, Reverend Seth Wispoy, give him his fancy name. And second, this is, for the first time ever, a live show, a live taping of The New Activist. We are coming to you from Washington, D.C. at the headquarters of International Justice Mission, and there is an audience here. You may hear them as we go throughout the show, because this conversation with our friend Seth is one that we all wanted to be a part of together. Parenthetically, Seth is a former colleague of ours at IJM. Reverend Seth Wispoy is a grassroots organizer, educator, nonprofit consultant, and pastor. He is also the directing minister at Restoration Village Arts, a retreat, learning, and action community for artists and ministers. It is a very cool and important place. We'll hear more about it later. In addition, Seth was one of the key organizers of the group of counter-protesters that marched on August 12, 2017, against the white supremacists and Nazi sympathizers who organized a Unite the Right rally to oppose the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue in the heart of the city. There is a now very iconic picture that we have all seen that we will also post on the episode page if you would like to see it that shows a group of robed clergy locking arms, praying together, loving together, marching together, and Seth is right there in the middle in a long white robe alongside folks like Dr. Cornell West, Lisa Sharon Harper, and others. Seth joins us today on The New Activist. Seth, how are you, pal? I'm hanging in okay. Yeah, how'd that intro feel for you? (laughs) Very kind. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, good, good. I'd like to start our time today by diving into Friday, August 11th, the day before the rally. Can you tell me what happened that day? Sure. So really what happened Friday, August 11th, and Saturday, August 12th, came as a result of weeks of work in terms of the response to the planned Unite the Right rally that you mentioned. The effort that me and a clergy colleague undertook called Congregate uh, was designed to equip faith leaders to show up in matters of justice, whether those are urgent situations like we experienced in Charlottesville, advocacy, or long-term educational opportunities. So on Friday, August 11th, to tell a new and different story, not in reaction to uh, the white supremacist rally, but to really lay bare the transformational work uh, that was needed to do, that we need to do, we held a mass interfaith prayer meeting in the spirit of the civil rights movement to get prayed up, get purified, uh, fill a church, and really equip ourselves not just for August 12th, but for the long and deep work ahead that we all have to do to dismantle uh, white supremacy. Tell me where you first heard that this Unite the Right rally was going to be happening, because you and I were texting in kind of the, the days and weeks before, and it seemed like it percolated from something 
small to something really, really significant. I, or maybe small isn't the right word, but something that like that started to raise the awareness of the, the whole community. Can you tell me about like where you first heard of it? Sure. And August 11th and 12th in Charlottesville doesn't exist outside of a much l- larger context and a much longer story. Yeah. Uh, we knew that the quote-unquote summer of hate was coming as soon as the permit requests were filed back in May, I believe it was. And even those permit huh. requests for the Unite the Right rally came as part of a larger uh, ongoing stream of events going back a couple years. Yeah. You mentioned the removal, the planned removal of the Robert E. Lee statue in our most prominent downtown park. That conversation's been going on for two or three years with increasing steam behind it. And it surfaced a lot of the tensions that still exist in our country's collective DNA regarding the stories we tell about ourselves and who and who is not a worthwhile and fully human citizen and a full human in the eyes of God. So it's it's the 11th and you're in this church and you're getting you're there to get kind of prayed up. Do, do you get a sense that this is actually turning into real danger? I, I, I'm asking this because as I try to think about like I'm sitting in that church or I'm you and organizing it, is there a moment where it's like, oh, this isn't just two people with counter narratives kind of yelling at each other. This is actually turning into a dangerous moment. We had uh, security, uh, movement security, I'll call it, different activists who are invested in protecting our city who made the decision before all of that was known to put the church on lockdown and put in a shelter in place order. So that news came to me. I was part of a secure communication thread, even though I was sitting up behind the pulpit with different people leading the service. We had uh, members of the alt-right trolling us from within the service, live streaming um, that we decided to not make a scene out of. But the threat was really real. We had been doing bomb sweeps all day. Crazy. Um, and so when the shelter-in-place order got put in, we started evacuating people out the side door. I was with my family. My daughter was going to stay the night with my folks and had just a panicked breakdown. Um, part of it was she was really tired, yeah. and we had just been through kind of this mountaintop experience. But part of it was the confusion and terror of what was going on and not being safe in a church building in that moment. And so there was a lot going on. And there was a point then where some of the activists who had been around the Thomas Jefferson statue in front of the Rotunda, which is a World Heritage Site around which white supremacists had rallied around, uh, ran to the church steps and were given water to, to wipe pepper spray out of the eyes and that sort of thing. But at that point, uh, the damage had been done and the white supremacists had kind of retreated uh, all over town. So, like, that night when you're, like, sleeping, or did you sleep at all? I mean, did you even... Two and a half hours. Okay. Were you... I, I realize I'm, like, circling this same idea over and over again, but, like, what are you feeling I, as you are getting ready in the morning, right? Because on the 12th, then you have a 6 a.m. church service. Are you scared? What's your wife saying? Like, how how is the Wispoy household functioning as you guys are about to go with the knowledge of how to do, you know, nonviolent protests? That's a great question. And I think I can only answer it by saying it was a combination of two things. I wasn't thinking. I mean, my mind wasn't a blank slate, 
but it's a combination of what I just mentioned. We had prepared for weeks, and so the mus- the spiritual as well as the physical musculature was there to to act as we felt called in the moment. And then speaking of call, I had already named for myself that this was a call. I felt called to be there and stand outside, um, not just out of my faith, though that certainly undergirds almost all of it, but for my family, for my daughter, and the future I want her to have. Which then brings us to the 12th. So up early, 6 o'clock church service. Can you take us beat by beat through the day? Sure. So we had a sunrise service that was especially for those people of faith who were going to step into a variety of roles, as I already mentioned, not just on the front lines, but uh, in helping medics, legal observers, what we call care bearers, with all apologies to environmental Jesus. I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have survived that day. It was like 90 degrees out there in Charlottesville without a constant supply of water bottles that were just thrust into my hand, even in the moments where we're linked arms hmm. uh, facing down it's men with guns. It's so the things you don't think about. That's really important. Yeah. That's right. Hmm. Um, we had a nearby church that was going to be a sanctuary and safe space. After that service where Dr. West preached and we sang and got prayed up again and, yeah. and woken up after yeah. very little sleep, several people who were going to partake in different roles uh, did a kind of round-the-way march to a park nearby, uh, what is now called Emancipation Park, where the Robert E. Lee statue is, and to locate themselves at the church and, and more. And we're at First Baptist Church on Maine, this historic African-American congregation built at the time of the Civil War. And those of us who had been through training and felt called to be really in the mix, meaning risking violence or arrest, um, but with a defined call to stand in the gap and tell a different story, uh, march silently from First Baptist uh, down to the downtown mall. Silently, huh? That's right. And it was How eerie it? because the whole yeah. town was a ghost town. So Weird. it was Because everybody silent. knows that, the, that this is, like, it is not safe to just be outside. That's right. So majority, there, yeah. yeah, there had been a Ku Klux Klan rally uh, on July 8th in Charlottesville leading up to this in the full robes and hoods. And that was more like a ton of the town came out to sing and dance and protest and march. This was, the message had gotten out that this was going to be dangerous. And so there's videos out there of our march, but this was early enough in the morning that once we got to the park, I mean, you kind of imagine a Western where like kind of a tumbleweed blows by. Yeah. Um, There is this extremely heavily armed militia from Pennsylvania and New York standing in a line on the sidewalk outside the park, and we were linked arm in arm and then fanned out to across the expanse of the street to hold a line. And I can tell you our intent was to when things were going to bubble up over the course of the next few hours, the Unite the Right rally was planned for noon. We were going, several of us, take a nonviolent civil disobedience action to block the park, partly to make a stand, but partly also to mitigate the violence we knew was coming and take up time being just hauled out of there. As we, of course, found out a little bit later, no one was getting arrested that day. It was just a free-for-all uh, zone with assaults happening openly in the street and no official bodies standing in the way of that. So that changed our calculus for the day. But for a few hours there, 
as waves and waves of white supremacist groups, neo uh, neo-Nazi sympathizers, and that sort of thing process into the park, hurling slurs at us, uh, running the gamut of bias and discrimination. Uh, we were singing, we were praying, as you mentioned, we were kneeling um, and holding space and enlisting those community members who were behind us in that same spirit, partly in a role to tell a different story, create a new song, literally and figuratively. Why your question I mean, was was right? Why keep them out of out of the park? Why did you decide on that line? We wanted to stand and and block access to the park. They have a right, maybe free speech. Um, though that question is up in the air, given that they did also come to incite violence, as that information has come out. But they so say they have a right to the park. We have a right to protest and our desire, our proactive desire was to communicate that God is not okay with this. These men are coming explicitly articulating and trying to demonstrate and call for dehumanization of too many of our human siblings. It's a violent ideology, white supremacy that is just woven into our national collective DNA. If it's not the DNA itself, what I would encourage fellow white male pastors to do who would push back against our desire to make a stand and even risk arrest is a perspective shift and say, I think you're looking at this as a white man to the white men who are coming here. But think for a second about those who they actively seek to dehumanize, who they don't want in quote unquote, our country. Hey, it's Eddie. I'm in the studio now listening along to this interview with you. And I've been kind of thinking about this interview a lot because obviously we recorded it a few weeks ago and a lot has happened since then, right? Almost every day there is some new gigantic news story to process. But, I, you know, we're talking about Charlottesville again, and it seems like forever ago. And I started to think to myself, to be honest, from the producer side of the show, like, does this does this matter? Have we missed the news cycle in this? Is it too late for us to be talking about this? Should we be moving on to the next thing? Should we be airing this interview? And I went back and I read a really great interview that was done on Democracy Now! between uh, Dr. Cornell West, Reverend Tracy Blackman, as well as Amy Goodman. And in that you know, Amy asked the question, does this matter? And she was talking to Dr. Cornell West, and he said, quote, I think this is a massive awakening. We've already seen an awakening taking place in the last few years, and it will intensify. We've seen marvelous demonstrations in a variety of different cities in the country, in the empire. We see young people seeing other young white supremacists, young people saying, that's my generation. I have got to be on the right side. I have got to be on the moral and just side. So I think that we have a real sense of commitment to being hope in such a bleak moment, and we can turn things around. So for me, as I am considering this interview and thinking about where we are as we walk through this narrative of the day, even though we probably and likely have empathy fatigue between Las Vegas and hurricanes and whatever else happens between me recording this and the end of the week, I hope that we still lean in to both the reality that Seth is walking us through and also the hope that is that Dr. Cornell West says is coming. And 
I think we can believe him because we can turn things around. Okay, those were my thoughts. We'll get back to the interview. Thanks for letting me think out loud for a moment. So the, I'm still in my head. You're, you're all still standing there. People are walking by saying very unkind things. At this point, do you still feel as though the, the narrative of what you hope to accomplish in that day is still happening or is it starting to devolve? So there was a point where kind of then wave after wave, battalions of neo-Nazis and white supremacists are coming down the street and tensions are, you can feel it in the air. And at that point too, I think everyone now is familiar with the term Antifa, uh, but for those who aren't, it just stands for anti-fascist, kind of loose collectives of activists who want to confront fascism. And they have a variety of tactics and methods for doing so. So groups of them are starting to amass. And through our summer of organizing, we had also worked to build trust and relationship and understanding with those who had a diversity of tactics so that we could ask permission. We feel felt like the church in so many ways is playing well, 400 years of catch up in the struggle uh, to eradicate white supremacy when it's not actively perpetuating it. So the Nazis are coming in wave after wave, and then groups of anti-fascists are coming who knew that clergy were going to be holding space that morning and were, as I mentioned, changing our calculus a bit. And it came time to say, we now is willing to make our stand for those willing to risk arrest. Again, at this point, we don't know no one's getting arrested. Which is a weird realization, right? That actually being arrested would have been like the worst fear, but then actually the actual worst fear is that there is yeah. no one to arrest. There were real strategic goals around risking arrest, one to tell a different story, one to take up time to mitigate against other violence. We, huh. those of us willing to risk arrest, took some steps to the park, linking arms and saying this was going to be our moment before an all-out clash breaks out, thinking, and there's a whole body of state police not more than 15 feet away. Um, the, the Nazi group that came up with like three-foot wooden shields, helmets, screaming slurs and spitting on us didn't blink for an instance at pushing right through us, through uh, a three-foot, three-person thick line of fully robed clergy. So our line broke because I think it surprised us. I was on the outer edge thinking if they try, they might try to go around us, and that's when we realized the day was going to go much differently than I think we had even like planned. It was for. more aggressive than you had anticipated. Well, and no one intervened. This is because this was the first physical confrontation of the day. It was Nazis assaulting clergy. Okay. So our line broke. They walked through us. We have a hurried conversation with some of the Antifa organizers who are wondering what's going on. You know, are you letting them in the park? They're like, no, it caught us by surprise. They broke through violently. Um, we're going to hold the line. So we kind of shifted. And as a, one of the leaders of the action, me and some colleagues moved to the middle. And it's dawning on us. I'm standing there next to Dr. Cornell West, who has also been on the record as saying, we're about to be crushed like cockroaches. Um, were his words, and it's dawning on me, and I think there are pictures out there that show this in my face, and several of us, like, I'm going to catch one in the face at best. Yeah. And that's when the largest group, I think it was the League of the South, uh, starts marching up the street, and we're holding the steps, Antifa's uh, blocking what was Market Street down our side. Cops are just watching. 
And uh, the white supremacists ended up charging right at Antifa and attacking them. So that's when we made a decision to pull back and relocate our agency, so to speak, um, because that changed the plan and we had to regroup, reorganize. And that's when what a lot of people have seen in the videos kind of broke out, uh, just open assaults in the street. And we did regroup. We had a safe space in the downtown area at a restaurant and came back right after everyone had been tear gassed in order to disperse. And so there was just kind of free for all fighting in the streets. And so we helped protect different groups of activists um, from beatings, um, from being confronted by the police who were slowly marching through the street and did that for a while before heading back to our safe space again. So at what point, what, like what time is it now when you're back at the safe space? The second time? Yeah. Uh, whatever time the terrorist car attack happened, because about five minutes after we came back, someone comes running up. We were only two blocks away. Okay. And so as a car has run over a bunch of people, there's bodies everywhere, and we just yelled, this is where the training, it's one of and probably will be the most traumatizing experiences I'll ever, or instances I'll ever encounter, but it's where our weeks of training really paid off because we could say clergy we got to go and just like that you know cars hit somebody we didn't know the details then though it became pretty clear that it was intentional when we got down there uh 30 clergy me reverend asaji fuseko brian mclaren and, and just different lay people like sprinted down uh without any questions and started ministering to people we made room for the street medics so congregate outside of the street medics was the first official group on the scene before the EMTs and police showed up. And so we helped clear the street and ministered to people, held people, got loved ones to the hospital. And that's where our infrastructure really came into play. I was able to get on the phone and essentially yell into the phone asking for rides because loved ones were separated and the EMTs were focused on those most grievously injured. You know, everyone knows there were 19. That was just the worst of the worst. There were people walking around with broken arms, huge contusions. And so clergy kind of helped make space. I'm, uh, no one can see this at home listening, but I'm kind of showing with my arms, linking arms, getting the street cleared away from all the blood and glass. And um, At this point, as you have had about a month and a half to think about this, at this point in the day, do you feel like the point that you came there to make was lost, or do you think that it was, like, absolutely confirmed? Because I, I don't know how to feel about it. I think it was absolutely confirmed, and I think, too, the story wanted to tell as the people of God was outside of our hands. We prayed for the ability to be present, to, be, to bodily show up and say, God cares about this. One moment I will never forget is, so I mentioned we went back to our safe space at a restaurant to regroup the first time after the the open fighting broke out and clergy came back out. And so there are like kind of loose fights happening in the street and we're kind of marching arm in arm, two by two, willing to get in the way and, and help anyone who's catching hell and doing that. Um, and most of the white supremacists had dispersed at that point. And, you know, it was a very kind of confusing, chaotic scene. And we just kind of step out in the street, 
trying to reclaim some ability to be uh, a helpful presence and this huge ovation goes up because um, we had we were wondering did we kind of fail the space and everything it was like the opposite it was like the clergy are here antifa black lives matter groups community members just kind of this big ovation i mean it kind of clears the way it's like i'm a huge lord of the rings nerd it was a little bit i know this comes off as like a humble brag but it was like you know when the elves arrive at helm's deep i don't feel like we earned it necessarily but it was like that kind of moment so to your question about whether we i really don't know that reference I'm sorry. That's all right. My dog's know. name is Frodo. I mean, it goes deep with me. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that part will be edited out. <laughs> nope. Um, to your question about, like, what did we hope to accomplish, I would say, yes, the people of God collectively in all manner of expression of what that means said that we are on the side of liberating love when hate comes to town and we are committed to showing that with our our bodies and our linked arms and willing to sacrifice ourselves for it i don't prescribe that everyone needs to risk violence and arrest to confront or dismantle and overcome white supremacy just the opposite Uh, we all have our contexts and we all have our calls but that there is an urgent need. And when people are crying out with anger and fear and confusion and hurt, that is where the people of God must be, I believe. That is what it is to be sent for those who are have encountered or claim to encounter the living God. And so the way I framed it this summer is we are faced with an acute pastoral concern surfaced by the inbreaking of a violent dehumanizing ideology showing up to be pastors might look prophetic in that moment but really it's all any of us are called to do and so so then what should people do or what could people do as a pastor if someone is listening to this they're riding the subway they're not in charlottesville and they're like i want to do something i want to be somewhat helpful in this yet it seems huge and you don't know what else to do other than stream a justin timberlake concert and (laughs) text in money right what what can someone do that would actually be helpful I mentioned that white supremacy and the various ways it exacts violence systemically as well as directly is woven into our collective DNA. And I say that not to be overwhelming. In fact, I think white guilt for those who are white is actually the stuck place. It's unhelpful. But I say that because it's actually a liberating responsibility. It means that in each and every moment of our lives, we have an opportunity to push the ball forward a little bit better towards the reconciliation and justice uh, we truly need our reconciliation with our past justice we, we need now so that we can have the thriving future and live up to the ideals we say we have as a country and as people of faith as um, that we have as uh, followers of a living and loving god That's the big up in the sky answer, practically. No, that's good. I would say. And maybe there is no practical. Maybe the premise of the question doesn't work. Like maybe it is understanding the theoretical, but if there is anything practical, I feel like that's why we hold on to things like 
hashtags and we like to put like a unity in Charlottesville because it makes us feel like there's unity in the whole conversation where there's not. So what, what could be practical? Sure. White supremacy is a lie. So practically we can be people who live in truth and that's what we're called to do. And that means having hard and uncomfortable questions, especially for white people, white people need to be, and those who identify as white need to be liberated just as much, if not more than others uh, from the lie of white supremacy because it does dehumanize and diminish us this idea that structures and systems and relationships and more should prioritize some of us more than others that's not what god wants so practically have good and hard conversations and through that more and more life-giving relationships will be opened up Practically, my own denomination has a wonderful curriculum for churches called the Let's Talk White Privilege Curriculum. Pretty on the nose. That yeah, and um, I highly recommend it. Knowing what you know now, right, of how everything went down, would you do anything? Would you have prepared any differently for that day? Would you do anything differently, or was this just the ordained outcome and this is the way it was going to be? I think it was more of the latter. We had a rich, diverse network of accountability partners and people to check in with, even as we were hurtling towards August 12th without much control outside of just preparing and organizing. I probably didn't mention that we asked a thousand clergy to join us in body and spirit. We had over 200 people come from as far away as California and Texas and Iowa and Missouri and Tennessee and Massachusetts. It was incredible. Um, so I've, I've sat with this question, I've sat with it in counseling, and in light of everything we know and knew at the time, I wouldn't have done anything differently uh, because we just didn't have the time. It was like 8 a.m. to 1 a.m. every night. The call was clear. The question was just how successful we were going to be in mobilizing. So if I have any sadness or anger about how things went, I'll say explicitly it's that we didn't have a couple hundred uh, white male clergy members on the line. That's a disappointment for me. Um, that, you know, isn't the final story. There are going to be other opportunities. Uh, but that's something that we could unpack in a whole other episode. How's your daughter doing? She's doing well. Second grade is fun. She's a bouncy ball of delight, but she understands that a lot of men with hate in their hearts, as we describe it, came to town. She thinks this is all her idea, actually, uh, trying these efforts to take down the Robert E. Lee statue and our different other Confederate monuments that, in truth, aren't Confederate monuments. They're Jim Crow-era white supremacist statues that were designed and installed to create whites-only spaces. So it makes it doubly ironic that, you know, the white supremacists want to say, you will not replace us. It's because they are really naming these things for what they are. Maybe irony is not the right word. So I'll close with a quick anecdote if that helps on the question of how my daughter is doing and how she's doing now. My daughter is a person of color. When I moved with my family back to Charlotte, so I grew up there and went to UVA myself, she was about four years old. 
and the big public library is right next to Emancipation Park where the Robert E. Lee statue is. And we pull up alongside and park, and we had just seen this exhibit at the Smithsonian, you know, marking 150 years since emancipation, 50 years since what we think of as the civil rights movement. And they had had like kind of child level exhibits and she had been really captivated by that, really troubled by that. And we think it's really important to be really honest with her at a young age about how the world sees her, uh, you know, good, bad and ugly in age appropriate ways, uh, because families of color have to do this um, and do do this at a much younger age. So she sees the statue. And it's this huge monument, so visually it speaks, right? It sends a message. And she says, who's that a statue of? And I said, well, you remember that war we were talking about, the one that ended in the freeing of the slaves? Uh, he was a general in that war. He led one of the armies. And the question comes that I know is coming. Oh, so he fought for the side that freed the slaves. Obviously, right? Because right. that um, that's all that would make there's sense. There's a huge monument to him. Again, right. so people wonder why these matter. And she's four or five years old. And I'm like, well, actually, he Virginia separated. They seceded, and they fought for the side that was fighting to maintain slavery. Long pause. Yeah. Why is there a statue of him then? And I didn't right. have an answer. And so while in my head... Yeah. Yeah, how could I was, of course, like, mm, yes, Black Lives Matter. I'll read all the right books and articles. Right. It was just this drop in my stomach because my own daughter saw that the city we raised her up in, like, valorizes uh, the ideology that says she is less than, that she doesn't belong here, that she, in her body and in her spirit, uh, is is okay to be done violence against. And um, that obviously brought it really home. And so in terms of how my daughter's doing, we, we try to be honest with her while also letting her be a child. And I will give whatever I can to this. She just doesn't understand why it takes so many meetings. No, I get that, ma'am. Friends, would you join me in thanking Reverend Seth Wispoy? Seth, thank you so much. As I think all of us here heard your story, there was both, uh, it was just profoundly sad that the march ever had to happen um, and that the conversation ever had to happen and is happening, but also there is just a twinge of hope that as I consider the iconic picture that you are in, that includes so many clergy of so many denominations and backgrounds and races and lives coming together to say that hate will not rule the day. Seth, thank you for being brave. I hope that we will go and do likewise. If you would like to connect with Seth, the best place to start would be through the Restoration Village. You can head to restorationvillagearts.org. From there, you can learn more about Restoration Village, you can learn more about Seth, and you can find all the links there to pertinent social media. Of course, the conversation that has begun here will continue over on the New Activist Facebook and Twitter. Both of those handles are New Activist Is, one word, New Activist Is. I really look forward to being a part of the dialogue that will surely spring from this conversation. 
A huge thanks to the Brilliants who are on tour right now, who scored today's episode. We love those guys. Their tour dates, music, merchandise, all of that can be found on thebrilliancemusic.com. And also a special thank you to our live audience here today, as well as Tyler and Matthew, who engineered our show for us. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, friends. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Reverend Seth Wispelay, my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as the Relevant Podcast Network, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Seth. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. You were Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more Relevant Podcast Network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com. Hey guys, I'm Mike Foster from the Fun Therapy Podcast. My first questions for my guests on the Fun Therapy Podcast is always this, what don't you want me to know? And what don't you want to talk about? We dive into the horribly messy parts of life and we find hope and healing and answers and we do it all with a smile. I hope you'll join us for the Fun Therapy Podcast.